Magnus used tombstones. Trick your friends, scare the shit out of your relatives, or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil. Magnus used tombstones. Perfect for people with names such as John Smith, Billy Bob Cletus Sideburn, Jimmy Hoffa, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joseph Stalin, and dozens more. Magnus used tombstones. The best used tombstones this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and in this episode, I'm talking about X-Men comics. But usually what I talk about is comics, movies, and TV shows in general. But as I say, today, specifically, it's going to be about X-Men. And the reason for that is because, I guess historically, maybe the best way to put it is, I've just never been big on the X-Men. Right? And the reason for that is because I didn't really get the X-Men. I guess my way of processing the X-Men for a long time there was that they were just another team of costumed superheroes operating in the Marvel Universe. I mean, that's pretty much who the X-Men were to me. You know, just sort of like a low-rent Avengers. A less interesting version of the, uh, of the Avengers at times, and at other times maybe a more interesting version. But either way, you know, I didn't really get what separates the X-Men from everybody else, right? And of all things, oddly enough, that could have possibly, I shouldn't say changed my mind, because it's not like my mind was ever changed, but of all the things that it could have, that could have possibly, I guess, broadened my horizons, it was actually House of M that sort of spelled it out for me that, and, and I talked about House of M with uh, Scott Rifen ages and ages and ages ago, but basically the shtick here is that as obvious as this may have been to most of you listening, it just didn't sink in for me. 
the X-Men are the hated of the Marvel Universe. They're the the dirty little secret of the Marvel Universe society, this aspect of life that no one really likes all that much, no one's really comfortable talking about. They're the unwanted. They're the cast aside. They're the hated, the persecuted, you know? And because of that, because of the fact that they've been by and large, rejected by society, they in turn have somewhat rejected society themselves. And so you could fairly well say that, you know, mutants in the Marvel Universe, they pretty much have their own culture, their own fashions, uh, to some degree or another, even their own social mores, you know? It's almost like a parallel society existing in concert with mainstream society simply because of the fact that they don't really have entree into mainstream society. And like I say, as obvious as that might have been for most of you, it just didn't really sink through to me. And to be fair, I mean, it's not like I read a ton of X-Men comics when I was a kid. I mean, I saw the occasional X-Men cartoon show or the occasional X-Men movie, but You know, it's just part of, you know, it was sort of part of the scenery for me, uh, I guess in geek terms. This wasn't something that I really paid a whole lot of attention to. You know, it's like, it's like you're aware of it, but you don't really think about it a whole lot. Does that make sense? So anyway, reading House of M, like I say, that sort of broadened my understanding of the X-Men, who they are, what they're about, so on and so forth. And so... Basically, what ended up happening was I I went on sort of an X-Men kick, you know, and just started reading a bunch of different X-Men comics and just kind of immersed myself in the X-Men universe, you know, because they kind of, they really did, especially in the 90s, have their own sort of corner of the Marvel universe. And one of the things that kind of, that I sort of came to notice is that the X-Men, maybe more than any other Marvel property, they have, uh, it's like they have defined eras, you know? You've got the Silver Age X-Men, you know, like basically the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby X-Men. And then you you move into the 70s where you get the sort of Bronze Age X-Men. And then maybe more specifically, you get the Chris Claremont X-Men. And then that lasted for a long time. That, That takes you into the early 90s when you get... I'm not even really quite sure how to put it, except maybe this is like the Scott Lobdell era of X-Men or... You know, the Marvel Age, because that was such a fucking buzz term back in the 90s. You know, you couldn't walk five feet without hearing somebody saying Marvel Age. It's the fucking Marvel Age, you know. And it honestly, it got kind of annoying. But anyway, so the general sort of 90s gestalt of the X-Men. And then, you know, it just it, it goes on from there. You know, they have these defined eras. And in a weird kind of way, you could view... I wouldn't say that these are all reboots, but they sort of have these points when they tell this huge, giant fucking story. And then they'll have, as Wizard Magazine used to say, a jump-on point. It's like they'll relaunch, and this is now where you can get uh, get in on the ground floor of the next year or two or three years or however long this thing lasts, of stories that are coming out about the X-Men, right? And that is basically what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about new X-Men... Number 114, 115, and 116. Basically, this is the first three issues of the Grant Morrison run on X-Men, which was retitled New X-Men when Morrison came on. And 
I haven't done a ton of research about this story, but it's my my reading of it is that the '90s era of the X-Men had basically run its course, and so right around right around the middle of I got or not even the middle, basically the early 2000s, you know, 2001, starting in July, in fact, because that's the cover date here, July of 2001. You could you could see this as a, a kind of a relaunch of the X-Men. You know, the 90s thing had sort of, the 90s era had kind of run its course. And so now it's time to start something new. And so if what you're wanting to do is start something new, I personally think that you could do a lot worse than bring in Grant Morrison to write your X-Men comic, you know? So anyway, that looks like somebody at Marvel Editorial seems to agree with me on that. And so you could view... New X-Men number 114 sort of as uh, not a rebranding of the X-Men, but sort of a, like I say, just sort of like a relaunch. You know, this is the X-Men basically entering a new era. You know, new stories, new creators, different characters, so on and so forth. You know, a different lineup for the team, different types of stories, you know, and this is where it all starts. Now, I've really enjoyed the new X-Men, so this is something hopefully I can make into a little bit more of a regular fe uh, feature on this show. We're just going to have to see. But at least for right now, this is new X-Men, number 114 to 116. Name of the story is E is for Extinction. Writer is Grant Morrison. Penciler is Frank Quitely. Inkers are Tim Townsend, Dan Green, and Mark Morales. Letterer is or the letterers are Comicraft and Richard Starkings. Colorist is Brian Haberlin. The basic summary for E is for Extinction as a story is as follows. As a new generation of mutants begins maturing across the globe, a long-lost master mold AI and Sentinel production facility in the jungles of Ecuador is uncovered by a mysterious woman called Cassandra Nova. She uses the last surviving relative of of Bolivar Trask to gain control of the wild sentinels and has the man order the sentinels to massacre the entire population of the mutant nation of Genosha. However, Cassandra Nova's presence shows up on the newly created mutant detection machine Cerebra, created by Beast, leading to Cyclops and Wolverine finding Cassandra and defeating her. But it's too late. As the nation of Genosha falls to the deadly might of the sentinels, and nearly the entire population of the island state is killed off. As the X-Men search the rubble, they find former X-Men villain and teacher Emma Frost as one of the survivors, having survived the Sentinel onslaught thanks to her body undergoing a new secondary mutation. At the X-Mansion, Beast investigates the biological origins of the powerful enemy they've just captured, while also revealing the possibility of mankind's genetic extinction within the next few generations. When Cassandra suddenly overcomes her imprisonment and effortlessly tries, or effortlessly makes her way to Cerebra in order to take over Charles Xavier's mind, Emma Frost, who moments before the battle had begun, left the X-Mansion, intent on revenge against humans for the genocidal sentinel attack on Genosha, shows up again to snap Cassandra's neck. But Emma arrives too late, as Cassandra, as it later comes out in the story, has swapped bodies with Xavier and shoots him, who is now, meaning she shoots Charles, who's now inside Cassandra's body, 
to keep Xavier from revealing what's just happened. Days pass. Jean Grey and Cyclops reflect upon the marital problems that have popped up due to Cyclops' post-traumatic stress disorder brought on by Apocalypse possessing Cyclops' body for over a year. When they turn on the TV and see Xavier out himself as a mutant on live television. The end. So, what did I think? Well, like I say, this is a... This is one of those things about the X-Men that I've just sort of come to appreciate, that they would have these periodic relaunches. And basically what it comes down to is it's a chance to get in on the ground floor of the X-Men, at least somewhat. It basically gives you an access point into the stories and into the characters. And so I think it could be fairly argued. I mean, I'm not sure. Again, I mean, guys, I'm kind of an X-Men numbnuts here, but I think an argument could be made that the last time the X-Men had... Uh, actually, just a moment. I'm going to take a sip off of my Coke because my throat is just really fucking dry right now. And because this is Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I'm going to vape a little bit too. Just a sec. Yeah. All right. Very good. All right. So where was... I? Oh, yeah. So I think that last major uh, sort of entry point into the X-Men that Marvel published. And guys, again, I'm kind of an X-Men nitwit. So if I'm wrong on this, well, go easy on me. But... I think the last time the X-Men had a really clear jumping on point, oddly enough, was X-Men number one. Basically the first issue of this very series that we're talking about right now. And that kind of set the tone and the context for X-Men, really for the next, one could argue, 10 years. You know, and basically everything that one needed to know about the X-Men started in some way or another with X-Men number one, and then just went forward from there. And again, that's just me hypothesizing. I could be very gravely mistaken on that. And if I am, just keep in mind, I don't consider myself to be this huge X-Men expert. I'm just speaking more as an observer here than an actual X-Men fan. So please don't kill me. Anyway, so what we're dealing with here, like I said earlier, is yet another new access point. For the X-Men, you know, basically Grant Morrison comes in and introduces quite a wide range of changes into this title. Now, some of these changes are more superficial and others of these changes, well, it takes time for them to come out, you know. So, but basically, New X-Men, number 114, basically right here on page one. I'm guessing that what we're supposed to take from this is that this may seem on some level or another like the uh, a thousand x-men stories you've read a thousand times in the past where you've got wolverine and cyclops beating the shit out of a sentinel you know and again i'm not an x-men expert but i'm guessing that's something that's been done in the comics thousands of fucking times already so superficially this seems like something familiar but i think as i think this is a just here, page one. This is one of the, this is a an illustration we're actually supposed to take take the time to analyze, which I find is actually very true of Frank Quitely's art in general. His art is meant to be studied. He has a very crafted kind of art style that begs to be carefully analyzed and reviewed. And when you pay you know careful attention to this, what you realize is these guys are these X Men, Wolverine and Cyclops. They're not wearing their usual superhero costumes as such it's more like they're wearing sort of uniforms 
And this is one of, and it actually becomes a little bit of a subject of conversation later on, but they're wearing what looks to be sort of like leather uniforms. And this is a new thing for, or it was a new thing for X-Men comics at this time. And I think of it as sort of a clever sort of juxtaposition of X-Men imagery where you see the X-Men doing familiar things. They're fighting Sentinels. They're protecting other mutants, but they don't look familiar. And that instantly, I think, throws off the reader who's maybe more accustomed to what had been up to then a more traditional type of X-Men. It kind of throws that reader off and make, and makes him wonder just what the fuck's going on here, you know? So I think that's actually a pretty clever way of, of starting off, you know, your big debut issue, you know? And so elsewhere, what we see is um, Cassandra Nova and Trask basically going through a sort of a virtual reality simulation of um, ne- a Neanderthal man being wiped out by more or less modern evolved man. And this is sort of a, for lack of a better description, sort of a holographic recreation, completely speculative. It's reasonable to assume that something like this could have happened based on what we see in the story. But this isn't a glimpse, you know, going back into time. This is just a dramatic recreation. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, Then we get to page three, and this is sort of like a title card page, where we basically get a giant friggin' X logo and uh, on the right-hand side, on the right page. But on the left page, you know, we get these sort of quick character profiles, and it's not immediately clear you know, who these characters are, at least based on these descriptions, you know, like, what are their powers? I mean, you see elements of their powers, but not really. But anyway, on the left page, you see uh, Scott Summers slash Cyclops. And then, of course, there's a an image of Cyclops's visor. Jean Grey, with a picture of Jean Grey. Emma Frost, with a picture of Emma Frost. Henry McCoy, PhD slash Beast, with a close-up of the Beast's uh, left eye. So that's kind of a hint of another change that we haven't really seen yet, but something here is about to be, if you're paying attention, because again, this art begs to be uh, studied and analyzed. And if you're paying attention, you'll see a little hint of a change with uh, Hank with his sort of more cat-like eye. And then finally, the very last uh, panel here, it's a picture of the claws coming out of Wolverine's uh, left hand. And then the caption says, Logan slash Wolverine. And that's basically the lineup that we're working with. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but I've read, obviously, pretty far ahead in New X-Men. And I've even gone beyond that. I haven't finished reading the the Grant Morrison run on New X-Men, but I did read the entire Joss Whedon run on Astonishing X-Men, which follows New X-Men. And not it doesn't. I don't think it instantly follows. I think it's like there's something like a year or several months at the very least between the two. So I've already read the entirety of the Joss Whedon run. So allow me to just say that I fucking love, 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 love this this lineup for the X Men. I mean, I think everybody if if they're into you know team books and whatnot, everybody's got a favorite iteration of their particular favorite team, you know, one particular lineup that to them is just better than all the others. And I like this uh, team of X-Men featuring Cyclops, Jean, 
Emma Frost, Hank and Wolverine and Professor X. I don't know why, but, you know, I realize this is a sort of a, a narrower cast of characters, but I just really dig this. I don't know. As I'd, I mean, I'm not really sure, actually, if this is my favorite, but I really do like this. You know, I mean, I can't imagine ever writing an X-Men story, but if I were to write an X-Men comic, this is probably the lineup I'd want to have. You know, this is the lineup I'd want uh, I'd want to use. So anyway, and what we're basically doing here for the next couple of pages is this is a fair amount of exposition. And we finally get a good look at at uh, Hank McCoy. And he's basically undergone a he's undergone a secondary mutation where he's moved away from. I don't even know what the hell he was supposed to be before. Sort of like, I guess, kind of ape like. And now he's more more like a feline, you know. And another sip off of my Coke here. Look, I don't know what happens. The minute I start podcasting, my fucking throat dries up. It's really annoying, but it's like it happens all the time. It's kind of pissing me off, but anyway. Mm. Good stuff. And more vaping. Anyway, so basically uh, what we have here is uh, the scene where you've got Jean Grey, Professor X, and Beast, and they're basically fuss, uh, futzing around with Cerebra, right? And as they're doing, doing that, they're basically um, sharing some exposition because, frankly, you know, when you write really anything, but especially comics, you can't have a scene that does just one thing, you know? Usually scenes need to do multiple things at the same time. So in this case, just from a mechanical standpoint, we find out what Cerebra is and the fact that it's brand new. We've never seen this before. And we find out that Beast is changing. You know, this isn't discontinuity. There's a reason that he looks different from the way that uh, veteran readers and more and fans that are more familiar with the history of X-Men... There's a reason he looks different from the way that he used to. And we also discover that this whole X-Men uniform type thing isn't restricted to Cyclops and Wolverine. The entire X-Men team, they're basically wearing uniforms of some kind or another themselves. So this is a pretty a pretty dynamic scene. And, you know, it's basically Grant Morrison laying out... He starts laying out a little bit of his agenda in terms of, you know, what the future of the X-Men is going to be, at least, you know, the foreseeable future. And, you know, little scenes like this. I know that Grant Morrison, he has his fans and he has his detractors, but I think he's really good at putting together scenes that accomplish so many things all at once. Oh, by the way, another thing that this that this scene accomplishes is it introduces the idea of a secondary mutation. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, what we're talking about are basically human life forms that have undergone one substantial genetic mutation already. It's not really a stretch to think that there could be secondary and tertiary genetic mutations that ensue that perhaps 
manifest themselves later in life. You know, so it's it's another way of keeping the story interesting, keeping the characters fresh, introducing new concepts, but still keeping true to the heart and soul of what the franchise of X-Men has always been about. And I really dig this. So, it, it, I mean, I don't consider myself to be a Grant Morrison fan eh, in general, but what I've read of New X-Men... This is some amazingly good stuff. So anyway, as we work through all of this, what we're, you know, as we read through all of this, what we're seeing is that uh, Cerebra basically is a much more powerful version of what Cerebro was and the way that it used to work. It does everything that Cerebro used to do, just bigger. It's bigger. It's more, it, it's more powerful. And this, again, it just speaks to Grant Morrison refreshing things, you know, livening things up. So from there, we, and of course now I've lost count of the pages and they don't number these friggin' pages, so I have no idea what page number this is, but basically the X-Wing is uh, zipping around. Wolverine and Cyclops are on their way back home and they've got the target of their rescue operation riding with them on the X-Jet. His name is Steve, but his friends basically call him Ugly John because of the fact that his mutation... It's not even really a superpower as such. His head basically has three identical faces on it. You know, so he's got, let's see, uh, one, two, three. So he's got four eyes, three noses, three mouths. And it's just a really fucking weird looking dude. But this could be the beginning of his, his exact mutation and like the contours of that are never really defined. He's basically in this story to die. And so in that purpose, he's a tremendous success. But it does kind of speak to the idea that, you know, some mutants are going to have mutations that are more mm, effectual, I suppose. So, some mutants are going to have mutations that are more effectual than others, you know. And I don't know what the evolutionary advantage of having four eyes side by side by side by side on your face might be. But whatever evolutionary advantage that that confers, well, Ugly John has it. Now, elsewhere, we see... Uh, Trask and Cassandra Nova, they basically arrive at a master mold facility with the intention of taking control of some sentinels and wiping out a shitload of mutants. Back at the X-Mansion, Xavier is having a telepathic meeting with all of the members of the X-Men, which is to say Gene, Scott, Hank, and Logan. And he's, again, this is, it's basically, it's more, it's more exposition. And the thing is, it's designed to catch new readers and I would say even veteran X-Men fans up to date on what the new status quo is going to be. And again, what the tone and the, the tenor of X-Men is going to be, you know, for the foreseeable future. And basically, Xavier has this, it's almost like a, a monologue, really. He says, a new generation of mutants is emerging. That much is certain. They'll be called freaks. Genetic monstrosities. They will be mocked, feared, spat upon, and accused. Accused of stealing human jobs, eating human food, taking human partners. But they are emerging in the inner cities, in the suburbs, in the deserts, and in the jungles. And when they emerge, they'll need teachers. People who can over help them overcome their anger and show them how to use their strange gifts responsibly. They will need us. Thoughts on the new school uniforms? And that's when these these new outfits that the X-Men are all wearing, 
we finally get a little bit of insight into what this is. Now, guys, I'm just going to put it out there. There's the in-universe explanation of why the X-Men have uniforms now. And then there's the real-world explanation. The in-universe explanation is that Professor Xavier wanted the X-Men to dress like superheroes because that was something that people were familiar with. It was something that they understood. And that could be that could be sort of the X-Men eh, basically creating a, subconsciously creating a foundation by which they can be accepted by society, right? If they look like superheroes, they may be welcomed as superheroes rather than chased with torches and pitchforks because they're mutants. And, you know, Logan even says, suddenly I don't have to look like an idiot in broad daylight. And eh, I don't know. I don't like that line. You know, I, it, I'm, I'm not cool with that. But anyway, so that's the in-universe explanation. Basically, that's why they were ever wearing, that's why they were ever wearing superhero outfits to begin with. But Xavier says, and it's not really, I mean, the, it, there's a, we only get a limited explanation in universe of why this is changing, but really what Xavier says is, I've been working on better ways to encourage people to trust mutants. And indeed he has. So the, I think the real world explanation for, uh, for why this, uh, for why the uniforms ever changed is really, there was a successful uh, movie that came out where the X-Men were running around wearing these sort of black leather outfits precisely because wearing their, their traditional uh, comic book outfits, their superhero outfits, well, the fear was that could look kind of stupid, you know, in live action. And so because of that, Brian Singer basically put him, uh, put him in those black leather outfits. And what we're seeing here is this is Marvel Comics basically trying to capitalize on that and sort of cash in on it for themselves, you know? So, and, you know, look, to be fair, you know, I mean, that's an easy decision for us to criticize, especially now. But the other way of looking at it is that even by comic book standards, the X-Men have had some pretty fucking weird costumes. I mean, especially in the 90s, like some of the outfits that, you know, Jean Grey would wear, like in the 1980s and into the 1990s. I mean, those are some really fucking weird costumes, you know? So I can totally understand wanting to change the entire aesthetic, you know, and tying in with the X-Men movie is a good way of doing that. You know, it, it basically allows Marvel to somewhat emulate what the movies are doing, but to do it on their own terms, because they're not these each of these uniforms. They I mean, I'm calling them uniforms really for lack of a better description but they're basically all wearing the, these sort of black leather outfits, but they look different from one another. No two look exactly the same. And they all have X logos on them featured prominently, but they're not interchangeable with one another. Wolverine's outfit couldn't, for example, be worn by Jean Grey. And I would imagine first Visa. So anyway, like I say, this is, I'm not sure. I, I really don't like the way that, you know, Logan says, suddenly I don't have to look like an idiot running around in broad daylight, you know, in that stupid outfit that I used to wear. That's a little out of line, I think. But anyway, that I think is really like the real agenda for for their outfits changing. Basically, 
Marvel's trying to appeal to the people who saw the movie, which I don't know, whatever. When, when has that ever worked? So anyway, the meeting breaks up and Logan and Scott basically decide that, hey, we need to go to Ecuador to find out what the fuck is going on. And that's what they do. Elsewhere, Professor Xavier pretty much gets attacked. He gets psychically attacked by Cassandra Nova. And the only way he can think of to to put it to, basically to save himself, is to uh, stick a gun next to his head and tell the person, because he doesn't know who it is at that time, but basically tell Cassandra, get out of my head or I'm going to blow my brains out. And Cassandra can see, you know what? He's not kidding. He really means this. So she backs off. Elsewhere in Ecuador, Cassandra and Trask uh, basically get set upon by some killer sentinels. And the moment that Trask begs for mercy is when the sentinels recognize him as a member of the Trask family. And their mandate is, is to preserve Trask DNA. And so basically he is now in control of these sentinels. And Trask is not exactly an alpha male. He's basically gotten dragged into this, not totally against his will, but this isn't exactly his idea of fun either. And Cassandra tells him, forget your dental practice, Mr. Trask. Your future lies in genocide. And that's the end of uh, New X-Men number 114. And I guess to get into New X-Men number 115, basically picks up really with that same scene, right where X the uh, the last issue was le uh, you know, left off. <laughs> with uh, Cassandra and Trask basically taking a tour of the Master Mold facility. And we see the X-Wing arrive in Ecuador right as some Sentinels uh, blast off and, and head to Genosha. Meanwhile, the X-Wing gets, gets intercepted by these sort of more insect-like Sentinels. And honestly, Cyclops... Wolverine and Ugly John, they've really got no choice except to abandon ship and then trigger the X-Wing's self-destruct. And then from there, they get attacked by Sentinels and pretty much have no choice but uh, to defend themselves as best they can. But it's a pretty short, it's a pretty short fight. They get, they get taken down in fairly short order and then captured by Cassandra Nova. Elsewhere, Beast is writing a love note to his his girlfriend Trish, and it's at that moment that he's he notices uh, that radio contact with Scott and Logan in the X Wing has been lost. So what the fuck's going on? He meets with uh, Professor X and Jean Grey to get answers on that. Meanwhile, and that is to say elsewhere, back in Ecuador. Cassandra basically says her goodbyes to Trask in the form of killing him because now that she can control the, the Sentinels, she doesn't really need him anymore. And it's not enough that she just kills him. I mean, she kills the shit out of him. Nobody deserves to die this way. And I speak here of a guy who, it comes out, was having these sort of dark fantasies of keeping mutant women and children as slaves in his basement. Even a sick fuck like this guy doesn't deserve to die the way that Cassandra Nova killed him. I mean, this is just fucking, this is terrible. So let's see. Now, from there, Cassandra Nova, she basically sets about torturing her captives, which is to say Ugly John, Wolverine, and Cyclops. But before she can uh, get too far with that, Wolverine breaks free and 
takes uh, Cassandra Nova down. Cyclops frees himself, but Ugly John is just in such bad shape from the shock treatment that he receives that Cyclops believes, at least, that he has no choice but to uh, put Ugly, uh, Ugly John out of his memory. Or, not of his memory. Listen to me. I'm tripping over my words here. Cyclops believes that he has no choice except to put Ugly John out of his misery. And so he basically blasts him with, uh, uh, with his eyes, and then that's pretty much the end of it. And I got to tell you, I mean, that is pretty fucking hardcore. You know, I'm a big believer in saving life whenever you can. I mean, it's one thing to put an animal out of its misery because, let's face it, animals don't really have the same access to, you know, medicine and healthcare that that uh, people do. It's just it's just difficult, you know. It's harder to do that. But, you know, human life, I mean, unless this person is like threatening you, there's really no good reason to end human life, you know? So that's pretty hardcore. But again, it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, I don't know about all mutants necessarily, but at least certain mutants, and I obviously I'm talking about Cyclops here, they kind of have, you might even, you, you might say a sort of different eh, moral parameter that they're working with, you know? their rules are not necessarily our rules and our rules are not necessarily their rules and so on and so forth. And so that's just fucking hardcore. I mean, there's really no other way to say it, but anyway, just so I can kind of finally get through all of this stuff, Wolverine basically demands that uh, Cassandra tell him where those, those sentinels that got launched, where were they sent? And from there we cut to Genosha where Emma Frost is teaching a class on on telepathy and one of the students who who has named herself her mutant name is negasonic teenage warhead basically says hey you think everything's just a joke but i had the same nightmare 50 times last night and i'm having it again right now everybody's gonna die after that the sentinels start laying waste to genosha and it's just this huge fiery orgy of carnage and destruction Buildings are collapsing, people are dying in the streets, and this is just, this is just heavy. I mean, we're basically talking about uh, 16 million uh, mutants wiped out in the span of just a few minutes. I mean, this is, there's, I mean, I, I truly don't think that there's ever been destruction anywhere like this, even in the X-Men universe before. I mean, this is in a class all on its own. To be continued. Which basically leads us into uh, the next... This is E for Extinction Part 3, New X-Men, number 116. And I got to tell you, this is... I just kind of like this cover. I mean, this is Emma Frost. And yeah, on the one hand, you know, let's face it, she's just kind of hot on this cover. But she has this... She's making this facial expression that, you know, there's a, a sort of smarmy... Not smarmy, but there's a sort of snooty, elitist facial expression that a lot of aristocratic types often make whenever they're confronted with their inferiors. And that's kind of the expression that Emma Frost is making on the cover of uh, New X-Men number 116. You move a little bit further down on the cover, though, and you look at the, I guess, the booty shorts that Emma Frost is wearing, and I don't know. I mean, there's sort of like a bulge in her pants. I mean, it looks like she's kind of got a dick to be honest with you. I mean, like, the, the coloring of it and everything, so, you know, is Emma Frost a tranny now and just nobody told her? I don't know. It's, just, it's fucking weird. 
So anyway, um, issue kicks off with uh, Jean Grey and Beast. They're basically trying to do a rescue operation in Genosha, but there's just not much here to be saved. And, you know, Beast, in order to basically stave off depression, he's, he's basically making a lot of just kind of dark jokes, you know, very gallows humor type stuff. And I mean, honestly, it's one of those situations where you, you know, you pretty much, you pretty much either have to laugh or you have to cry. And he's chosen to laugh. And without warning, Jean senses the presence of Emma Frost. And so she and Beast dig her out. Emma uh, comes out carrying the body of Negasonic Teenage Warhead and hands her over to paramedics for resuscitation. And we see here that Emma's body is now covered in diamond. This, again, speaks to the concept of a secondary mutation, right? Where it's not just Beast now that's changing, other characters are changing now too. Elsewhere, back at X-Mansion, the X-Men have Cassandra Nova in custody, and Wolverine severed her vocal cords basically to stop her from basically using voice commands to sick more sentinels on them. And they took her back to X mansion and whatever's going to happen, whatever it is that they're going to do with uh, Cassandra Nova, they pretty much need to do it PDQ because she has a healing factor of her own and her, her injuries aren't going to keep her incapacitated for very much longer. So the pressure's on to figure out what's next. Then again, I don't know the friggin' page numbers here because they aren't numbered, but what we see is uh, Emma Frost in the Beast's uh, lab. He's poking, he's prodding, he's trying to figure out just what the fuck is happening to Emma. And that's where the idea of, again, secondary mutation gets reiterated here. That's what's happening to Emma. Now, if you're familiar with Emma Frost from newer X-Men comics, more recent ones, then her coloring job here for her, her diamond appearance is kind of weird. Because it's not really coloring. I mean, basically, somebody used the plastic wrap effect in Photoshop to give what I assume is supposed to resemble a sort of diamond coloring effect to Emma Frost's body. But it doesn't really look like diamond. It looks like somebody scanned this art, took it into Photoshop, added in the fucking plastic wrap effect. I mean, it just looks cheap. Now, actually, hold on. I'm going to get another sip off of my Coke here. And I'm going to vape a little bit more, too. Good stuff. Now, I'm not trying to sound disrespectful or anything like that. It's just that, you know, I've been using Photoshop ever since I was, uh, I guess I was about 16 or 17. So basically we're looking at like 20 years here. And I don't know why, but it's just this plastic wrap effect. I've never liked it. I've never thought it looked good. I've never used it really for anything. And I think it looks like just cheap fucking bullshit here. And in time, the art teams would eventually find a way to draw Emma's uh, diamond appearance in a way that looks good on a comic book page. But at least for right here, this just looks, like I say, I mean, it's just the fucking plastic wrap effect in Photoshop. That's really all it is, you know? So I just think it looks shitty. But again, we get a, a little bit of exposition on this idea of a secondary mutation, you know? So it uh, Hank says... I'm looking into this and I'm trying to do a million things at once. Jean can move things around with her mind again. 
You've grown an exoskeleton of invulnerable organic jewelry. I, for my sins, have magically transformed into Tony the Tiger on barbiturates. So it's not just one character who's being affected by this. And that's the point. So anyway, what we see uh, following that is basically Gene and Emma sort of having it out saying, uh, with Gene saying, you know, killing our enemies was Magneto's way. He's dead, Emma. You were there. His philosophies died with him. To which Emma replies, and I'm not even going to try to attempt her, her accent here. She just says, oh, come on, Gene. Humans made those, those sentinels to kill mutants. That thing in your cells gave the order. And what we're seeing here is basically Gene Gray is, is towing the part, the Xavier party line, while Emma, who it needs to be said, isn't really a hero in the usual sense. Emma maybe wants to take a little bit more drastic action. So she summons a cab and hits the road. But I need to actually comment on the art, the art here a little bit. I like Frank Quitely as an artist. He's no one really does it quite the way he does, but I'm not, I don't really like the way he draws women. I mean, this sort of long, lanky look that he gives, that he's known for uh, giving to women. I think it actually really works well for Jean Grey and Emma Frost. It's just that the issue is he gives that, that sort of, that six and a half feet tall, spindly build to everybody to all of his women and it's it's like after a while the novelty of it just sort of wears off you know these women that look like they're six and a half seven feet tall and weigh maybe i don't know 120 130 pounds it just sort of it gets old after a while is what i'm saying i mean you want a little bit of variety here now they do look different in terms of like the their their facial features their hair and i would say even their body language but their basic body types, they're pretty much interchangeable with one another. So, so there's that. But anyway, so either, either that works for you or it doesn't. And I don't know. Following that, we get a scene where Beast basically lays out what Cassandra Nova has been talking about in other parts of the story. Specifically that Beast thinks he's found a genetic, a genetic trigger for extinction buried deep in the human genome. This e-gene turns on when an entire species is about to be turned off by Mother Nature. The data looks conclusive. The human race is at an end. Within three, maybe four generations, they, meaning mankind, will be gone and replaced by mutants or something even stranger. So what I find kind of interesting, though, is nobody in the room really seems to be too put off by that. I mean, yeah, they, they are mostly for lack of a better way to put it, integrationist when it comes to human and mutant relations. You know, we're all in this together. We have to live together. But they are not necessarily sad to know that nature is basically selecting the human race for extinction, you know, which I find very telling. Again, mutants have their own culture. They have their own norms. And they have, I would, I think it's fair to argue, they have their own, in some ways, their own sense of morality that's maybe a little bit different from ours, you know? It, it's not, necessar <clears throat> not necessarily uh, interchangeable. At that moment, though, Beast under, he experiences a, uh, he comes under attack, a psychic attack from Cassandra Nova, and then she pretty much wrecks shop on the, uh, the X-Mansion. 
She beats the shit out of everybody and is is pretty much kicking, let's face it, everybody's ass. She decides to head over to Cerebra in an attempt to take over Charles Xavier's mind, when elsewhere, Emma Frost says, you know what, maybe leaving isn't what I need to do after all. There's something else that I just need, uh, that I need to do. Back in the X-Mansion, Cassandra Nova, uh, she's taken possession of Cerebra, and she's about to destroy Professor X, but Emma Frost comes from behind in her diamond form, breaks Cassandra's neck, and at least for the moment, that subdues that uh, that subdues Cassandra. Except that what we find is that, and it's actually implied on this page right here, Cassandra, or at least her body, is saying, "Um, Charles, um, Charles," and so that's kind of a a hint that Cassandra was, may have actually been successful in what she was attempting to do. And that moment, she gets shot to friggin' pieces by Cassandra, who is now occupying Charles Xavier's body, unbeknownst to the reader, but that's exactly what happened. And, like I say, there's the fact that Cassandra was trying to say that earlier on the page, but then there's also the fact that Charles Xavier had told Jean earlier that he would never use the gun to shoot anybody except himself, but here we see what looks to be Charles shooting the shit out of Cassandra Nova. So that's supposed to... That should be sort of a clue to readers that, you know what, things are not on the up and up here. So, anyway, elsewhere, Gene is... Gene and Scott are hanging around, watching TV, talking about their marriage, and specifically Scott's kind of fucked up state of mind right now, when at that moment, Xavier, on TV, outs himself as a mutant. And that's pretty much the end of this story. And, you know... Like I say, this is, I really dug this story. I really dig Grant Morrison on the X-Men. This is just, these are fun comics. And, you know, what I, maybe, you know, the, a lot of writers are, they do sort of character-driven stories or they may do plot-driven stories. And what I find is that there's a breed of writer out there. Grant Morrison is one of them. Alan Moore is one of them. Neil Gaiman is one of them that they do, they do those types of stories. I mean, they can do uh, character-driven stories or plot-driven stories, but they can also do concept-driven stories. And that, I think, is what Grant Morrison kind of specializes in. And it works, I think, really well for X-Men. Now, being as this is written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by Frank Quitely, you know, at least to me as a Superman fan, the comparison, the logical comparison, inevitable really, is to All-Star Superman. And again, I mean, this is one of those things where you really needed to pay attention to the art in, All- in All-Star Superman in order to get the fullness of the story. And I think that's true to a degree here. I don't think Frank Quietly's work is as refined as it would be later on down the line. But even right now, you know, you can see Frank Quietly's talents and how good he is at inserting sort of minutiae into the art that really does help tell the story or foreshadow certain things or, I don't know, develop characters or just whatever it is that he's going to do. And, you know, there are... Sometimes, you know, these these writer-artist teams come along and 
you know, they really do kick ass. And I, I happen to believe that Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely are one of those art teams that, you know, they can really bring the best out of each other in a lot of cases. So one of the things, though, that came out of the story that, again, it kind of emphasizes the fact that I'm kind of an X-Men neophyte. I thought it was commonly known that Professor X was a mutant, and apparently it wasn't. So, you know, reading this as a new reader, this moment where he unmasks himself as a mutant, it didn't really hit me as hard as it probably would, I don't know, other, you know, other uh, readers who, shall we say, are more familiar with X-Men than I am. But this is a kind of dramatic moment, and it's made all the more dramatic considering what's coming in future issues and, you know, what the future is going to bring there. This does not just get swept under the rug, believe me. So, now, normally what I tell you guys is I'm going to come back to a given title at some point in the future, and then I always add in the caveat, I just don't know when that's going to be, but it will be soon, and usually we all laugh about it and have a good time, and nine times out of ten, I never talk about it again. But in this case, actually, I do have a plan to come back to a new X-Men. I've actually worked that into my little schedule here. So... If you enjoyed this, if you like new X-Men, if you're just, you know, as big a fan of Grant Morrison on X-Men as I am, guys, keep your ears peeled because I'm going to be coming back to this and it's going to be very soon. And I've, like I say, I've got a plan in mind so that I can do just that. So just uh, keep an ear out for that. But I think that's pretty much it uh, for me this week. So looking forward into the future, you know, that's the thing. The next, actually the next batch of episodes that I've got set up. I know where things are basically going to go, but I don't know if I want to talk too much about that, at least just yet. But anyway, whatever. You're going to find out before too long. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, 
an eighth episode feature of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday, only at twotruefreaks.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. 
Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>